do you remember me as a good student or an average student? Oh, heavens. You know. I didn't give you the option of bad student. So here's my out on these questions. So I never get <laughs> Is that this, if the grading is anonymous, so I have no idea what your your grades were. <laughs> and it's true, by the way. Welcome to the Astro Esquire podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Johnson. And in each episode, I interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. First, a disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any of my past, present, or future employers or clients. Today, I am joined by Dennis Burnett. This is Dennis Burnett. Uh, I'm a space lawyer, of of all things, and um, I am a uh, principal at LMI uh, Advisors, a consulting company, and an adjunct professor at the University of Nebraska, teaching export control and commercial space law. I feel I'm morally obligated to mention I am also an alumnus of the University of Nebraska Space Law Program, and I am currently an employee of LMI Advisors, where you are a principal. I think that's a a, a good disclosure I should make. Certainly. So, Dennis, you answered my first question right off the bat, so let me ask you to elaborate a little bit on that. Why do you consider yourself a space lawyer? That's a really good question because uh, a lot of um, a lot of people advertise themselves as space lawyers, but I think there are only very few people who actually do space law um, because it it is such a specialized area, and uh, but it still can cover a lot of different uh, specialized topics within that specialized area. Um, why do I consider myself a space lawyer? Because I've been doing it uh, since about 1978 in one form or another for a variety of clients, both in the United States and abroad, Russia, China, Germany, uh, as well as uh, U.S. companies, and both big and small, well-established and um, startups. So let's dig into that a little bit, because one of the points of this podcast is to get people to see the application of space law as a broader field than they might imagine. You sort of alluded to it. There are lots of different components under the umbrella of space law or lots of different pieces that affect space activities and space business. So what are what's one of those segments that maybe might surprise people that like oh that is something a lawyer needs to handle that still involves space well export control is probably the one uh, that comes easiest to mind because that is one of the very first things i did uh when i went to work at uh, the communication satellite corporation back in 1978 now the comsat corporation doesn't exist anymore but at the time it was really the only place in town, in the town you know, I'm talking about is a very big town, that, um, that did anything with commercial um, space law. At the time, ComSat had formed uh, Intelsat and was operating Intelsat. Uh, Intelsat wasn't fully formed at the time. And they had just launched uh, the first of the Inmarsat satellites, which, be, uh, which were called Marisat satellites at the time. Inmarsat hadn't been formed. Uh, all in 1978, uh, and so I started to work on, on issues 
involving export control for satellites, which is something that was very new at the time because we were helping Aerosat get formed and uh, helping them construct their, their satellite, which was being built by uh, Hughes Communications, which um, also no longer exists. It's part of Boeing now. <laughs> it still exists. It, it now exists under a, a different name. It's been uh, incorporated into that is correct. Uh, a larger, larger company now. Yes, absolutely. Um, but that that happens that that happens a lot. So you've seen from your vantage point that you, this tracing of I knew this group of people or this IP or this company under one name, and now I see they still exist technically as a cell of a new larger organism somewhere else. Well, yes, and and this industry has consolidated greatly uh, over the over the last forty years or so. But now we see actually the opposite happening. Um, this is kind of like the, the the days just after the you know people started to decide that cars were possible. You know how many car companies there were in 1900, 1905. Uh, it's a, it's a huge number, and and in 20 or 30 years there were only a few left. And and so we're seeing seeing that now run through a, a, the second cycle of of companies that are doing space. The new guys are called they call themselves new space. I, I really don't think that many of the ideas are new, but nevertheless, the people that are involved in them are new. So, yeah, more power to them. That's that's a actually a nice quick distinction to make. They they're still doing space stuff, just like the old companies, but maybe it's the people in them that are new um, to the community. That that is true. There are certain things that you can't change, uh, as as one. Uh, German physicist once said to me, you know, you can't change uh, Newton's laws. Um, you have to live in them. Um, so, you know, there's only so many ways you can launch. But as we can see, there uh, are new ideas about how to cut costs. Um, the physics isn't changing, but some of the other aspects are. Uh, certainly technology on materials, on propulsion, on guidance systems, which allows uh, SpaceX to bring their their first stages back down to, to Earth and be reused. All of that wasn't possible, you know, 30 years ago. So um, that that also is normal in the evolution of technology. You know, the ideas come early. Um, the implementation may take 20, 30, 40 years. So all of the technologies that are necessary to make that that idea work get to a, a point where they're mature enough that the whole the whole thing works. I mean, the example I use in my class when we talk about this is helicopters. I mean, Sikorsky essentially had the the idea of the helicopter, you know, long before he moved to the United States and finally had all the technology available so he could actually build one that worked. But he, he knew what he wanted to do uh, 20 years before that. In that regard, have you, without naming any names, have you seen any companies or technologies that were ahead of their time? Uh, things that you know somebody attempted to do back in the 80s that clearly didn't work at that time because maybe the market or some other piece of technology wasn't there, but now that idea has come back around? Well, we, we have seen a lot of... Um people come up with ideas to, to have, as to how to build a better launch vehicle um, over the years. Uh, and it usually, in the early days, it usually came down to uh, the people that were building launch vehicles were building them for the U.S. Air Force and for NASA. 
and they were government contracting and they were building on cost plus and there was no incentive to make it a lean manufacturing process. Uh, and they all had ideas about how they could, could do it cheaper and hardly any of them succeeded, mainly because there wasn't a market other than for NASA and for the Air Force. Uh, now that's changed and there's lots of reasons for that change. Um, right now we're seeing uh, uh, affordable small launchers. We're seeing more affordable small satellites with smaller components, lighter components. We're seeing, you know, billionaires with sufficient funds to do these projects, which is, which is something new. Um, and all of these things are coming together at the right time. And, and big data is another one, artificial intelligence. Um, all of these things combined to make, you know, these great leaps forward. And I think that's what we're experiencing right now. So let's use that as a segue. Let's take it back a little bit. You said that when you started um, in space law, you were working on export control for satellites. And you said that that was new at the time. Um, when you were doing that, and you said, I think, 1978 or so, um, did you know then that it was space law? Is that how you described that first set of work to yourself? Well, let me go back a little bit and explain, you know, why did I go to work uh, at the Communications Satellite Corporation, uh, their subsidiary, Comset General, which was uh, their subsidiary that was supposed to do new business development, uh, things other than, you know, the International Satellite Consortium, which became Intelsat or was Intelsat at the time. So I was really a, a new business development lawyer, uh, and they hired me because I had a maritime law background. And they had just launched the first, as I said, Marisat satellite, and they thought that they would have a need for someone that knew something about maritime law. It turned out that there never were really any maritime law issues involved in that. There were issues involving uh, obtaining sufficient spectrum um, from the FCC and coordinating it with the ITU and making sure that the ITU process favored, you know, commercial development. So that became one of the things I, I became familiar with. Uh, we were involved in remote sensing at the time. Remote sensing was conducted uh, either by NASA. Um, uh, the Landsat program was, you know, pretty well along by then. Uh, NOAA did weather remote sensing. And of course there were the, the DOD, uh, remote sensing satellites uh, for surveillance uh, and other things that were actually run out of an, an office in the, in the Pentagon that it didn't have a name. It didn't have a sign on the door. And if you went to visit them, you had to go down a couple of levels in the, in the Pentagon and knock on the right door and the, they'd let you in. You could talk to them. Uh, it, it has a name these days, NGO, but at the time it didn't, it was secret. The very existence of the organization was secret. So that's uh you know, that's what we did at first. And how we got involved in the export was that, that no one had really considered the idea of what kind of technology were we exporting when we helped foreign providers, uh, operators build satellites. Um, the State Department, who was responsible for that at the time, really, really hadn't thought of it much they had they had it on the books so when we came knocking uh for a, a license to provide technical assistance to arabsat it was sort of a, a first time first time for us and a first time for them and so 
we sort of evolved the the the, uh, the rules and regulations over the next uh, ten or fifteen years uh, together in industry. We of course weren't the only ones, but uh, I think we were one of the first. So when all these cases of first impression and, and people who haven't yet considered things, um, were they? Do you, did you get a sense that they were describing this as space law or, or were people just like, this is a business case or this is a national security issue? Um, it just happened to be involving space and they weren't sort of abstracting it to uh, a new level. No, I, I think you're right uh, that over time uh, it became clear that there were things like uh, FCC regulation, um, NOAA regulation after the uh, first statute was passed to regulate remote sensing in 1984. Uh, all of these these things which are related to commercial commercial contracts on launches, commercial contracts uh, for purchase, purchasing of satellites, commercial contracts for lease of transponder capacity. Um, all of these things, um, you know, were discrete but put together in the space arena made, made the space law issue. Um, and as I like to tell my students, you know, if you want to be a space lawyer, you'd have to know something about space. It's just like, uh, if you want to, if you want to do construction law, you better know a little bit about construction. If you want to do medical malpractice, you better know something about medicine. And the same is here. If you want to do all these things, which otherwise are just contract law or just administrative law, but if you're dealing with space, you have to know something about space as well. And that's, to me, that's what a space lawyer is. It's not, it's not the interpretation of the uh, uh, of the treaties dealing uh, with uh, return of astronauts, with registration of space objects, um, those things which are taught in law school uh, as the international part. It comes up, but I can tell you that I'm, I dealt with the international stuff only about three or four times in in 20 some years of private practice. Yeah. And that's one of the other things I've tried to draw out with this podcast is talking to different people whose uh, day job and day-to-day work uh, really are in, in different arenas or fields. So I, I have spoken with people who focus full-time on the international issues, but I've also talked to people like you who have focused on uh, specific activities of individual actors, and they also say the majority of their time is is really spent uh, on the domestic issues of operating a company or an activity or for an agency, just like any other you know national nationally regulated activity. Correct. So you had a background in maritime law. And you've said that to be a good space lawyer, you need to know something about space. So let me ask you, were you previously interested in space? Had you ever had an inkling that that is uh, something you really wanted to be involved in in your career at some point? Yes and no. Um, Of all things, I had a space law course at the University of Nebraska when I was in uh, I got my JD which was sort of an unusual thing. Uh, in fact, I think it, they only taught it for a couple of years before they instituted their LM, LLM program uh, many, many years later. Um, so I had, a, I had a little bit of background in it. I went to work when I came to, to Washington, D.C. to go to Georgetown for my LLM. I went to work at the Federal Maritime Commission, and we essentially did 
not hard maritime law. We did administrative law dealing with uh, common carriers, essentially. Uh, and I specialized on um, countervailing uh, situations involving discrimination against U.S. shipping and the foreign trade. Um, kind of things that would be handled today more at the uh, USTR than would be handled by the Federal Maritime Commission. But, uh, you know, after four years of doing that, I, I was looking for some something else, something new to do to expand my horizons. And I fell into this job at, uh, at, at the Communications Satellite Corporation at ComSat General. Um, and, um, you know, did I know a lot about space law? Uh, no, not really. Did I know a lot about the, you know, astrophysics? No. Uh, I remember the first uh, meeting I went to to prepare for the WRC, the World Administrative Radio Conference, um, with the chief scientist from ComSat and a whole bunch of other very brainy engineers. You know, after an hour and a half, I hadn't understood a word they had, were talking. About. I didn't. What the hell was? What the hell was an ERP for Pete's sake? What's? A, I didn't know what that was. So, so it became, you know, on the job training. You had to, you had to learn it, and and uh, I was, I was interested in it. That that helps. Um, when we got on our team, we formed a team to do uh, remote sensing business development. And the guys that I worked with, uh, you know, they were great. They were uh, would explain things to me, uh, explain, you know, how did how did how did this work? How did this technology work? What was a remote sensing? What was the difference between data and information? And all of these kind of things. Uh, it was terrific. Um, um, and, and I also took some courses, uh, um, uh, you know, after hours, uh, you know, uh, astrophysics for for lawyers without math, that kind of stuff. Uh, and over the years, uh, you, you put it together. And uh, I would say, and I tell the students uh, at Nebraska this too, um, you know, if you want to be a space lawyer, if you want to be a communications lawyer, you got to spend some time learning learning the science behind it. And uh, because at the end of the day, you won't understand what's going on unless you do. And now that you've, you've established uh, a career working with satellite companies and in, in space, do you now have any particular affinity for space that maybe you didn't have uh, before? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've got the bug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's nothing there's nothing that I'd rather work on than that. I mean, there are other interesting technologies, and uh, that's great. And I found that that's really what I'm interested in at, at the end of the day is new technologies. If they have to do with space, so much the better. But they don't have to necessarily deal with with space, um, you know, software development for uh, autonomous vehicles or whatever. That's fine too. I mean, uh, it's all it's all new and interesting. Uh, it keeps me young. And since space law really does include so many of these other disciplines that overlap with stuff outside, working uh, with space technology and space companies probably does get you exposure to other cutting edge technologies in other fields. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you, if you think about, um, you know, software development for uh, robotic arms and then think about, well, what, when we're doing rendezvous and proximity for spacecraft, well, you know, it doesn't matter if that, that robot is trying to work uh, under sea or in outer space, right? It's the same kind of software, the same problems, 
uh, same encryption problems, the same export problems. So uh, they overlap quite a bit. So uh, if you can, um, can you talk a little bit about how you are involved uh, today in space law and uh, space policy? Well, uh, in a couple of ways. Um, as you know, I teach uh, at the University of Nebraska in their LLM program to try and try and share some of the experience I've had and also to bring a commercial uh, point of view to uh, the academics uh, instead of having just, uh, you know, international, uh, international public law uh, to show, you know, what you need to do, uh, what you need to know from a com commercial standpoint uh, in terms of private law, uh, administrative law, regulatory law, etc. Um, I'm engaged in consulting. Um, we have clients that, that build small satellites uh, and operate them. Um, we have clients that build large satellite constellations and are in the process of trying to get them started. Um, and we have a variety, uh, actually a variety of clients, uh, some that are building. And w one client that uh, I worked with previously is building a brand new kind of uh, ground station antenna that can communicate with satellites that can steer beams without having to move the antenna itself electronically steering. So these are all, all exciting things. Um, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that I can continue to do this. So uh, along the lines of the exciting new things that are happening, are there are these new activities exposing or pushing any new issues in space law? And, and you know, a lot of people, like you've alluded to, think about the international component, but are we also pushing any new issues uh, at the national level as well? Yes, on both the international and the national level, we have the uh, have the issue now of sort of non-traditional uh services or activities in space that i mean we've seen this in science fiction for years and now we see you know some companies with some real money trying to do these things things like space tourism like hotels in space like visiting asteroids like mining asteroids like settlement of the moon like you know uh rendezvous in proximity with satellites in order to fix them uh, rendezvous and proximity with satellites in order to get them out of orbit, uh, cleaning up uh, debris in orbit, um, uh, solar uh, systems, you know, in space that are where the, the microwaves are beamed back to, to generate electricity. All these uh, ideas, some of them have been, most of them have been around for a long time, but now we're seeing them uh, trying to be implemented. Um, and they've all brought up uh, new issues because our regulatory, uh, especially in the United States, uh, our regulatory mechanisms here uh, aren't structured for it. For example, we have the FCC, which authorizes uh, the use of radio stations if the radio stations in the United States. We have NOAA that authorizes the operation of remote sensing satellite systems. We have Department of Transportation that can authorize launches and launch facilities and, and re-entry, but we have no part of the U.S. government that has the responsibility for authorizing and supervising uh, other activities, the, the kind of new space activities we talked about. A 
let's go back a little bit, uh, and if you can, let's talk specifically about rendezvous and proximity operations. Sure. I don't know that I've really covered that in the podcast before, but can you give a brief description of what that means and uh, talk about why that is a legal question? Well, what we're, there are, could be a variety of things that are going on in rendezvous and proximity, but uh, when you're going to do a rendezvous in proximity, essentially what you're doing is you're launching something. It could be a satellite, it could be a, a mini shuttle or, you know, an experimental XB, what are they, the Air Force has a, a, has a vehicle um, that is able to approach um, other things in orbit in, to image them in some fashion, either with radar or optical, um, and, and be able to uh, approach them safely and perhaps even interact with them in some fashion. Uh, that fashion could be um, with it, on some kind of robotic arm, for example, or with a, a standardized attachment, or it could be uh, hostile, uh, like our good friends from, uh, from the UK have explored for orbital debris uh, with a harpoon. Um, and, and then to do something with it. Um, we were involved uh, back in the 90s with, with an with a astronaut, retired astronaut, who thought it would be a, a good business to, um, to do refueling of, of, of satellites that were placed in the wrong orbit. Uh, at the time, there was a certain percentage, like 20% of the satellites launched, uh, went into the wrong orbit, and they spent most of their fuel getting to the right orbit, and so their lifetimes were reduced. And his idea was, well, look, we could launch a satellite that could uh, could dock, could have a full load of fuel, um, and essentially could extend the, the life from, you know, a few months to its intended life of 10 to 15 years. Uh, it turned out he, he – there's an example of something, an idea that was too early um, – there was there was no market for it. Um, we 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 thought that uh, the insurance companies would would like this idea. They didn't like it because they didn't like the potential liability that they would assume if they did that. So um, that's that's one example of rendezvous and proximity. Now, why is that an issue? Well, it's an issue first of all from the aspect of who authorizes and supervises that, right? Who gives the license, if you want to call it that? from the United States government, if it's a U.S. satellite, uh, totally unsettled. Uh, there's the issue of um, there are certain elements of the U.S. government that don't want people approaching their assets in space. Um, they don't even want their assets in space being imaged. So the very the very thought of uh, you know having a, an imaging system that looks outwards or upwards from a low Earth orbit to a higher orbit or to other places on a low orbit, you know, is, is not too exciting to those, to those people. And there's, then there's the issue of, well, can, can you use this? Uh, can our adversaries use this uh, in some fashion? And, and there's been some activity where uh, Russian satellites have come awfully close to some commercial communication satellites um, without anybody knowing exactly what they're doing. Uh, and, and the question is, well, you know, how close can you get to another satellite? Uh, what's your exclusion zone? Is there an exclusion zone? Under the Outer Space Treaty, it just says, uh, har- excuse me, harmful interference. So, you know, if they come right up and get in front of your nose, but don't touch your nose, is that okay, uh, so to speak? <laughs> 
you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay to disagree with me as long as your fist doesn't touch my nose, right? And that's, that's an area where it's important to, again, understand the physics of what we're talking about, because uh, the speed at which those satellites are already moving is, what, at least 17,500 miles per hour? Yes, it's uh, yes, it's in the eighteen thousand mile per hour kind of neighborhood. Yes. Yeah. So if you're trying to travel alongside somebody else and hold your fist an inch in front of their nose, but you're both going at eighteen thousand miles per hour, there's not really a whole lot of room for uh, error there, right? So that's why exclusion zones are defined in space pretty uh, pretty large, right? Well, uh, obviously, uh, you know, NASA is considered uh, had had one, but I don't know that there's any ag- international agreement about what that is. Um, I think there's some effort now to try and get some international agreement on the military side about you know that kind of thing, just so that we don't have you know collisions. Just like there's sort of an agreement about how close you could come with an airplane to another airplane um, without you know endangering everyone or causing a war. Um, but I don't, those rules aren't really there. They need to be, they need, there really has to be some effort to establish those rules. And there is some effort ongoing. Excellent. All right. Let's transition then to the next set of questions. I'd like to ask everybody, what do you think is the biggest misconception, misconception in the general public about space law? Well, uh, it's when you tell them you're a space lawyer, they think you're in real estate. <laughs> yes, I've gotten that. <laughs> so that's number one. I, you know, people really don't know what that means. Is there a misconception? I, I don't know if it's so much a misconception as there just is no idea of what that means or entails. That That would be my answer is that I don't really see a big misconception. I just see no conception. Well, that's that's why I'm doing this podcast. So hopefully we have at least some non-space lawyers listening to it and learning something about that. Um, now let's move then into what I call the field of people who should know. Is there any misconception in the space industry or space field about space law? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, and And... You know, I'm getting to be an old timer here. So, um, you know, we, we've got a lot of, of young, very bright people coming into the to the field, which is which is great because they bring enthusiasm and new ideas and new approaches. Sometimes they don't recognize that they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all have that problem, right? Um, so, so every generation has that, that issue, uh, as now an old timer, I see it, uh, cropping up again and again. Um, I think, I think the biggest problem with new startups, for example, is that they don't understand the regulatory burdens they have to bear the, the responsibilities to, to get licenses from the FCC or from NOAA or DOT, um, that to be successful, you really need to inform all levels of government in Washington uh, on the executive and the congressional side about what you're doing and to be clear and, and uh, transparent um, or, or that you run into problems because you don't 
you don't know what you don't know. And the only way you, you get by that is to be open and, and uh, outgoing. So now we enter the lightning round. Um, we talked uh, and covered some advice you would give people, but I break it down into specific uh, demographics. So what advice would you give students who are pre-law or pre-graduate school that are interested in space law and policy? That's uh, to take as many science courses as you possibly can. Um, and as many um, English writing courses as you possibly can. Those two things will prepare you well for a career in law. Um, and uh, if you want to do space law, that's great. You'll be prepared for it. Excellent. And then what advice would you give current law students or graduate students, understanding that they're already under such immense pressure and have such long reading lists from their regular classes. How do they maintain that interest and maintain that connection for future success? Well, I, I'm going to uh, suggest something that was actually uh, explained by a, a young associate uh, who works for a friend of mine who graduated last year. And she graduated from, from a college where they didn't have any space law courses, but she really wanted to be involved in space law. And, and I thought the way she approached it was very good. And that was <clears throat> in all her projects where she got to choose her own, her own project, her research project or her clinical project or whatever it was, she tried to t tie it into some problem involving space law. Um, and that's how she taught herself. And I thought that was a very, very clever approach. Um, and so I would recommend that as a, as a good thing. So that means you don't have to really add on to greatly to what you're doing, just make what you're doing relevant to space law. And then what advice would you give to working professionals, uh, lawyers who have already graduated, who have already been in practice for a couple or a few years, and they're looking to make a transition or get more involved in space law and policy? Well, I think this applies to any, any profession to, uh, and that is, look, if you wanna be at the top of your field, uh, you need to plan for, you know, what, what do you wanna be like when you grow up? You know, what, what, are, what are those? And when I, when I was a vice president and had several people working for me, on my staff, I would tell them, look, if you want my job, how are you going to plan to, take, to, be, to be me in five years or 10 years? And, and we would talk about this and we'd say, okay, think about the things you need to do. You need to you know, have continuing education. So if you're, going to be, if you're going to be a space lawyer, you're going to be an export lawyer, you're going to contract lawyer, you better take continuing education in those areas so that you can actually say, yes, I'm becoming an expert in that. Are you writing about what you're interested in? Are you publishing? Are you speaking? Are you becoming known? Um, are you learning how to speak? Can you give a good presentation? Um, and if you can't, you know, like Warren Buffett, you know, go out and learn. And that was his biggest uh, problem when he came out of business school. So he was scared to death of giving a speech. And uh, he went to Toastmasters Club to get over that. What a, what a great example. Um, 
So if, if uh, a young lawyer is interested in becoming at the top, you know, at the top of his field in, in any given area, you know, look at a spider chart and do a spider chart and pick somebody that you want to be like, you know, and say, okay, what, what, what are the attributes of that person that make them, you know, the top of their field? Do you need to have a certain number of years of experience working overseas? Do you need to speak a foreign language? Do you need a certain expertise in a, in a scientific field? Do you need to be published, you know, on and on and on and on, and then say, okay, well, where are they on this? You know, are they, you know, one to 10, are they nine or 10? And where are you? You know, if you're doing it honestly, you're probably beginning your year one or two. Uh, and then you got to figure out, okay, how do I get to eight or nine in all of these areas? Yeah, I think that that's actually really important. I don't know that we've had that piece of advice yet that you can um, use examples of people you look up to measure out what aspects you think made them successful or that you admire them most for and purposefully uh, work on those aspects in yourself um, to make yourself up in the, the future image that you want. There's a, there's a great story about Benjamin Franklin. And we all know Benjamin Franklin for his uh, ability to write, write really well. Um, but he didn't consider himself to be a, a good writer when, when he was a young man, uh, but he wanted to be a good writer. And so he developed his own writing course. And it went something like this, which is, I think, really, really an interesting approach. He would pick out uh, something from a publication written by, you know, a very good writer, as an example. And um, he would take notes from that. Um, and then he would put it down for two weeks or so. Then he would come back to his notes. And then he would try to recreate the original from his notes. And when he was done, he would compare what he wrote to the original to see how he done. And he did sure. this <clears throat> religiously every Sunday. And he really did improve his, his writing skills as a result. Just shows you if you if you're clever and think about it, you can uh, you can you can think of things like that. It doesn't have to be the same thing that Benjamin Franklin did. Yeah, I can see somebody uh, taking notes of a Twitter thread and then trying to write out that same Twitter thread and comparing the two. <laughs> I don't I don't think Twitter threads qualify this example. No. Did you mention Warren Buffett mainly because of the Nebraska connection? Why? I, I, it certainly is no accident, is it? <laughs> and then uh, sometimes I ask this question from people who I've known before. Did we first meet in your satellite and space business law class at Nebraska? You know, I was trying to uh, remember that, Nathan. Uh, certainly, we did meet then. I think, uh, actually, I had met you while you were at GW. And it may have been in the in the moot court competition. I was going to say, I might have argued in front of you. I can't quite remember myself. Yes. Yeah. But I think. Do you remember me as a good student or an average student? Oh, heavens. You know. I didn't give you the option of bad student. So here's my out on these questions. So I never. <laughs> uh, 
it is that this it, the grading is anonymous, so I have no idea what your your grades were. <laughs> and it's true, by the way. All right. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me today. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom. Thank you.